we've all heard the adage that it's not what you know, it's who you know. Um, but I would add to that, that it's really who knows you, who knows what you're capable of, who knows what you're looking for, and who is in a position to advocate for you and to think of you when those opportunities arise. Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. And this week's guest is Jennifer Davis, Chief Marketing Officer with Planar, a multi-million dollar company that makes those enormous video display walls. Jennifer has worked her way steadily through the tech world and moved from role to role as the need arose, always taking on new challenges as they came along. And there have been many, particularly when the company she worked for was taken over by a Chinese company. Jennifer has a regular blog and is passionate about encouraging other women to take on leadership roles. And she's a firm believer in diversity in management teams. She talked to me for the podcast about her philosophy and her career and about managing in a more diverse environment. I could bore you with lots of stories and details about how I came to do what I'm doing today. But it started with a real interest in uh, business strategy. And the impact that businesses have on their communities and industries. So I studied business and history, thinking that one of these days I would write books about companies and the impact that they were having um, and the lessons from their leadership. And I had a close friend and mentor uh, who suggested that perhaps maybe I should go make some history before writing about history. And so I took that as a challenge and started a career at a, a software company, a startup, where I wore many, many different hats and uh, felt myself sort of outgrowing that role. Um, although it was a great team and great products, I, I felt like there was more to learn. So I went to work for a larger company uh, out of software, now in hardware, publicly traded, and had you know my first opportunity to work for a public company, my first opportunity to manage an international team. I just kept moving to larger and larger uh, companies, actually got recruited back to Planar. Um, now in a very different role, I had spent the first part of my career in marketing and uh, felt that I wanted to broaden my experience. So I came back to Planar to run operations uh, for a business that we were starting up. Uh, we started acquiring companies. And so I took a temporary position helping with an integration and then we started acquiring more companies and I did integration activities there. And then after that all got settled down, we moved from having a business unit structure to having a functional structure. And uh, I was tapped to go back into marketing. I look back, I feel very blessed for the opportunities I've had. <laughs> it sounds like a roller coaster, but it sounds like that you just ran with everything. I mean, you were just thrown, you took a good bit of advice from your mentor but you just went, okay, and you just jumped right in there. Um, a lot of people wouldn't have done that. Is that just something in your personality? You just went, every time there was an opportunity, you went, okay, we'll have a go. Yeah, probably. That is, I think, uh, you know, something that I'm very open to. Uh, you know, but also I'm just very curious. I want to know more. I'm, I want to constantly learn. And I think that's part of me as well. And, and I'm not unique in that. There's a lot of people. I, I'm blessed to work with a lot of people who who are curious about things and want to constantly learn. And so, you know, it's become part of the culture of the company to move around a bit and to take some different responsibilities to broaden your skill set. And one of the things that I always wanted to be is I wanted to be a really exceptional business person who had a functional responsibility, you know, whether it be marketing or whatever. I didn't want, you know, to be uh, pigeonholed 
And so, you know, part of that has just been following that curiosity wherever, wherever it took me. I think it would be very hard to pigeonhole you seeing as you've been flying around more like a pigeon than actually being stuck in one place. <laughs> well said. <laughs> the mergers that you've been a part of your job has been seeing or overseeing mergers. Am I right in that? And how has that gone? Yeah, I've certainly been part of teams and each each sort of merger acquisition that we've done over time, my role has been slightly different depending on the timing and, and what else was going on. You know, for some of our projects, I've led integration of marketing. Um, for some of our mergers, I've done team integration and, and led an inter- multifunctional integration process. For many, I've been on the due diligence team and have been involved in, you know, evaluating uh, new opportunities. And then, of course, with our recent acquisition, you know, we were acquired uh, in the fall of 2015. And so, you know, my role has been as part of the executive team of that now larger organization, figuring out, you know, how to take the best from both of the organizations and, and build something new. And with the company that took you over, was that the Chinese company? Yeah, yeah, Liard. Yeah, our, our headquarters are in uh, Beijing. We are public on the Shenzhen Exchange. And was that difficult blending, you know, a very Asian company and then an American company or a Western type company? Was there, were there cultural problems or were there challenges rather in, in blending those two companies? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. And it's, one, and it's one I get asked a lot and reflect on a lot too, because you don't want to be naive about cultural differences, as, as you know. One of the things I would say is that all of our experience with mergers and acquisitions in the past have told us that there are, you know, regional cultures, company cultures, you know, style and approach cultures that come from the leadership that are different no matter where the company is. And so um, part of what, you know, I tried to do and, and many on my team um, were, were thinking this, this way as well is how do you stay open-minded and not jump to conclusions or assumptions about what it's going to be. And, and I'll tell you, um, our, our experience was um, Liard is an exceptional company growing very fast. Now, just this year, if I can brag on us a bit, we uh, just received word from market uh, analyst sources that we are now the number one market share uh, provider of LED video displays in the world, which is a huge accomplishment. And that has come for after year over year over year, now I think four years in a row, literally doubling the size of the company every year. And not just doubling our sales turnover, but doubling profit every year. And that is a huge accomplishment. And But if you think about that in terms of the impact that that has on, on the culture, is that... Um, you know, Planar had had been a very established company, you know, $200 million US dollars in sales a year, um, 32 um, plus years of experience in displays, and a very established company with very established processes. And we were bought by a company that was rapidly growing and acted very entrepreneurial, very much like a startup. And so I think the biggest cultural challenges, if, if I can put that word around him, it's been a great opportunity as well, is to pick and choose between the processes and the structure and the infrastructure of an established company like Planar and bring those 
to add scalability and sustainability to a rapidly growing, very exciting entrepreneurial company. So it's been a, a bit of a curation process, you know, evaluating what was there, um, you know, what does what systems or what processes or the like did Liard need to, to go to the next level? And what of those did Planar bring to the table? And so it's been very exciting. It's, and so we're in a rapid time of change. It's not like one of those merger situations that you read about in the paper where, you know, meetings are had and one team wins and one team loses. It hasn't been like that at all. It's been about putting all of the assets of the new combined company on the table and deciding what do we need to move forward? I, I say that's a, a big lesson that a lot of companies could learn. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you make it sound so easy, though. I think I said that to you earlier on, but it's true that, you know, you just started here and then you moved there and then you and it just seemed to flow for you. Um, but how did you get started? How did you secure your first job? I mean, I know a lot of young people, the, the millennials now, they're very choosy about where they want to work. Um, you know, like when I was graduating from college, you did well just to get a first job. You didn't really care what it was. But how, how did you choose your first job or did you just take the first thing that came? Were you very picky? You know, how did it start for you? Well, I I, I feel like my approach probably was, um, you know, more of a see something that needs to be done and do it kind of approach. So my first job out of college was working for this software startup. I happened to know personally the head of marketing at that company, and um, I had had the privilege of interning there. Um, the summer before my senior year of college. And so um, I was a known entity. And so when it came time to graduate, um, they actively pursued uh, bringing me on board, which is a wonderful place to be. I, I know it's a, um, you know, an enviable place to be in some ways because, you know, many new college grads have challenges finding the kind of role that, that would suit them and, uh, take it from there. But what, one of the things I would say that has illustrated to me as a, a truth <laughs> when you're when you're looking for your next opportunity, uh, you know, we've all heard the adage that it's not what you know, it's who you know. Um, but I would add to that, that it's really who knows you, who knows what you're capable of, who knows what you're looking for, and who is in a position to advocate for you and to think of you when those opportunities arise. So the fact that I knew my first boss um, socially before I, I knew to call it networking, we were networking, I guess, he got to know me. He knew I was a good student. He knew I was articulate. He knew whatever positive things he knew about me. He also knew that I had a lot to learn and he saw an opportunity to, you know, to work with me on that. And so um, I feel like that, you know, set me off on the right path and has really affected how, you know, the kind of advice that I give to people who are in college or early in their career, that it's, you know, you try to learn as much as you can, you try to get as much relevant experience as possible, you try to broaden your network of who you know, um, but maybe even more important is giving them a glimpse of who you are, so that when the time is right, and you have a request, or more importantly, they have a need, <laughs> Um, you come to mind. And uh, that certainly played out for me. Listening to you, it reminds me very much of another 
fantastic woman that I interviewed who was Irish actually and she said you don't always go straight up a ladder sometimes it's better to go sideways and to learn different departments and different ways that will actually help your advancement in the long term would you agree with that it seems to me that your journey has been a bit like that absolutely and and I think it comes down to owning your own career you know and and being um you taking being opportunistic at times of course um you know being lucky often um but also just realizing that it's your career there you know there's not a a fixed ladder anymore where you know one job you know leads to the next promotion leads to the next promotion up a, a straight path I, I feel like that is a maybe a more old-fashioned way of thinking about career planning anymore because it, it just unless you're in a professional field like a you know, I, I know that if you're an accountant, for instance, you go through these steps of becoming certified and then, you know, you rise up the ranks of the firm through a pretty established process that is time-based um, as well as merit-based. But outside those really traditional professions, uh, most people have a lot more ability to write their own job description and to drive their own career than they might even realize. Now, I was very interested in your blog. Uh, I would recommend it to anybody to, um, to to read through. And I loved what you were talking about, um, negotiating and integrating a merger, being like a dance. Uh, I thought it was a wonderful analogy, and it gets the message across so simply, particularly to women, if I can say that. Um, could you take us through those steps? And what did you mean, you know, being like good choreography? Sure, absolutely. Well, I, I must admit that what I know about dance is from, you know, uh, taking, dragging my husband to some ballroom dancing classes and um, uh, having the guilty pleasure of watching a, a reality TV show that plays here in the States called So You Think You Can Dance. And that show, um, I feel like I've not only have been entertained, but I have, I've learned some things. And, and in that show, they, they audition excellent dancers and athletes that each have a specialty. So, you know, one is a ballet dancer and one is a contemporary artist and one is a hip hop dancer or something. And they throw them together with a partner who has a different background and a choreographer to learn a new style of dance. And every week, you know, where the show would run, there would be a, you know, a struggle where the ballet dancer was learning to hold their feet in a different way because they were doing a different style of dance and learning to be coachable. Um, by a very by a stranger essentially who was going in and trying to teach them to some new skills and to move their body in different ways and I've I found that experience of watching people go through that struggle um, in that dance world to be I, I, I just found a lot of parallels and uh, to me it was about two people who were very capable coming into the room being amateurs again you know, they were an excellent street artist. They had made their living doing hip hop dancing on the sidewalk. And now they were needing to learn the tango and they were going through that process. And so what, what I wrote about in the blog was just some things that jumped out to me. And one is that when you're learning a new dance, when you're an amateur again, and you're trying to apply the skills that you've learned before, um, you know, each company, when you have a merger, had strengths, they had processes, they had best practices, they had a brand, they had products that were being successful in the marketplace. And how do you bring those things together? Well, one is that you need to figure out what is the pace of the dance. Um, are you 
Are you needing to dance together real quickly? Are you going to be able to take your time? What is the pace? And then there's a choreography, um, you know, that sets that pace. Um, it's also important. Second point was about clear roles and responsibilities. Who's leading <laughs> this dance is important to know. It's also important that um, just, you know, some organizational authority is attached, you know, is established because ambiguity really can drain productivity in these situations. And people are already maybe on edge a little bit. And so it's really important just to set clear rules of the road. Again, just like a dance, if somebody's doing the tango, who leads, who follows? Um, the third point I made was successful integration required listening and they require, I wrote in the blog forgiveness, but it's, you have to be gracious with each other. You know, you have to realize that, wow, this person is an expert in what they were an expert in, but that doesn't really apply here sometimes. And sometimes we're going to step on each other's toes, literally and figuratively. And so it really requires us to listen, communicate, maybe over communicate and just assume that the other person has good intentions and work together, you know, to forgive each other along the way, because there's going to be plenty of opportunities for us to mess this up and to hurt each other uh, in the process, which comes down to the fourth point, which was really about trust. You know, you need to find ways to build that trust. And it's built on the small things. Keeping small commitments allows you to keep larger commitments. And then the fifth point is really about that teamwork takes time. You know, um, even professional dancers have to practice. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we need to give each other a break and give ourselves a break that the experiences that we're going to have over time are going to inform us and going to make us better athletes in the end and hopefully lead to better business outcomes in the case of mergers. I love the way you use a dance analogy. It's, uh, forgive me for saying, but I think it's a it's a one that only a woman would think of because normally when men, <laughs> norm, normally when men give analogies, it's like, it's like a game and you're going in defense and you're going offense and they're starting talking about nets and balls and you're like, oh, really? I don't, I, if you're not a sporty person, it doesn't work for you. Well, and, and, and sports analogies are, are difficult because, you know, um, if, we may make a sport analogy in the States about baseball and that, you know, some things don't, you know, and, and uh, in, in, uh, you know, India, they might make a sports analogy about cricket and I don't know how the game is played. So, you know, <laughs> we get ourselves into trouble. Sure. Me too. I also love the word that you use there, gracious. I mean, it takes a lot of courage to be gracious. Um, and, and I love what, what did you mean by making small commitments? Uh, can you give me any examples of what you mean? I sort of know what you mean, but maybe just a, a elaborate sure, on that. Sure, sure. Well, I, again, as strangers are coming into the room and building trust, I mean, I, I think of these dancers, to go back to the analogy, you know, these people are coming into the room, they've never met their dance partner or their choreographer, and the choreographer, a stranger is telling them that this other stranger should pick them up and spin them around their head. <laughs> like, wow, okay, so maybe we start by doing some some other steps of the dance where when I reach out my hand, um, my partner needs to be there. And when I reach out my hand and my partner's hand is there and is steady and they're giving me solid direct, you know, lead direction, then I feel much more comfortable when the lift happens. And I feel like the same thing happens in business. So, you know, the first thing you do is often not the, you know, you're not deciding to integrate factories day one, you know, you're not killing product lines day one, you're not making the real tough choices day one, you know, what you're doing on day one is like dividing up the communications, you're um, reassuring employees, 
you're working together on messaging for the press or the industry. Um, and like on those first steps, which are critically important, I don't mean to diminish them at all. I'm, I, I have a communications background and this is what I do. Um, but in those conversations, the more that that teamwork develops where you say, you know what, this is the part of the, um, conference call where I think it would be good for you to talk about this. And then after you're done talking about that, you'll pass it back to me. It's those kinds of interactions. And then it's just the, you know, are people keeping their meetings? (laughs) Um, Are they making commitments saying, oh yeah, I'll take care of that. And then actually doing it and then following up, letting the team know that they've done it. It's those, it's the little day-to-day things that build trust and, um, and again, a willingness to say, wow, I screwed this up <laughs> um, and I want to make it right. Those build trust as well. And so then when it comes time for the really hard decisions um, and, you know, things that impact people's employment or things that impact company strategy or the product offering and the like, you know, we've already built a team, um, you know, that can handle that as a team. I presume one of the things you have to do is, uh, to make people feel comfortable enough so that they can ask questions if they're not sure, rather than just nodding and saying, yeah, I understand when really they don't. Yes, absolutely. Or to be to be comfortable speaking up about the unintended consequences of things. I mean, that's the thing about a merger and acquisition is that, you know, there are a variety of perspectives and, and um, expertise in the room. And it's really important to bring all of it into the conversation. You can't, you know, neglect wisdom that's in the room. And often if people don't feel empowered or, you know, have the ability to speak up, you're going to miss something. (laughs) I think they often say that I know from talking to other women who have been on boards, and they say that they will frequently raise a topic. And it just gets bypassed or not even heard until a man raises the same point. Uh, have you come across this at all? Has it ever, I'd say you're very articulate, it wouldn't happen to you, but have you seen it happen in meetings, particularly when new groups are coming together, that maybe the shyer ones are very slow to speak up and yet probably they have the, some very key pieces of information to impart? Well, I, I certainly have seen it happen. And I've seen it happen from folks who are soft-spoken. I've heard it happen when somebody is not completely convinced of a position, but they just want to ask a question and they're, they're easily dismissed. I've also seen it, you know, certainly uh, women in, in meetings can, can, can play that role as well. Um, I, I would say that it is an absolute responsibility of everybody in the meeting meetings or especially important decisions to, to ask questions and to put, alternate views on the table and equally it is everybody's responsibility to draw out their colleagues. And so I'm one that typically fills um, the space. I'm, I'm quick to respond. I'm usually, you know, you know, in school I was the first to raise my hand. I'm just that kind of person, but I certainly know that some of my thoughtful colleagues that have so much to offer are not the first to raise their hand. And so because I'm not afraid to, to jump in there, I feel a duty and a responsibility to, to inquire of the quiet person in the room. So, Jane, what do you think? I can see you're thinking about something. What are some of the things that are going on in your head? And to make sure that their truth, you know, their wisdom goes into the room. And, and I feel like everybody needs to take the responsibility seriously that they're not only contributing 
but they're encouraging their colleagues to contribute. And I, it's, it's a hard thing for many of us extrovert types, but it's absolutely critical. I think that's really super advice. Um, can I just ask you, just to go back on something, in technology companies, in tech companies, have you found that you're sometimes in a room, and you're probably one of the very few women in the room, um, how does that feel and how do you handle it or do you not even notice it now? Um, do you think gender diversity is, is a good thing? Does it change the dynamic of a culture in a company? Yeah, I, I, I guess I'll start with the second question. I, I think diversity is very good. I think... Um, that uh, decision forums, uh, decision-making groups, boards of directors, executive teams, even management teams can become an echo chamber of like-minded people um, not actually putting all the issues on the table. And to the extent that we all need to advocate for diverse customer bases and diverse employee bases, decision-making has to be diverse as well. So it absolutely is a good thing. Um, in terms of being um, the only woman in the room, I've I've certainly found myself in that situation. I've also found myself um, with, you know, key colleagues and key positions that are women. Actually, here at this Liard International business, our head of R&D is a woman. Our head of HR is also a woman. So, you know, in our executive team meetings today, I'm certainly um, not the only one representing a, that point of view. I do joke <clears throat> and uh there's truth to it that there's never a line at the women's restroom at our industry events, you know, it being in technology um, of any type and the audiovisual industry uh, where we play. Um, yeah. is we have to fight for diversity. <laughs> um, it doesn't just happen organically. And so it's very important that those of us in, in a, in a position of influence, um, you know, actively take, that responsibility seriously, both men and women, to fight for diversity um, moving forward. Sure. I think it's a key thing that we have to bring men with us on this journey. Um, I'm conscious that we're nearly through the, the half hour and there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but maybe I'll just wrap up with two things. I'm going to ask you about your, your top five tips in a few moments, but I want to talk to you first about, um, you know, social media and has it taken over our lives? Some people would say it has, um, that the Instagram hashtag life being unreal. What did you mean by that? And you wrote about that in one of your blogs. You know, people, people generally don't post. Uh, or share in any forum, social media being just, being just one of them, people are, are often hesitant to, to um, reveal that they're struggling, um, that they haven't had a good day, that there's been something amiss. And uh, unless it's like a health issue where, again, people in general feel more comfortable sharing some of those things um, or asking for support, you know, it's not often that that those things go um as public. And I think social media has just provided us a, a forum for faster and more polished communications of the things that we always shared with each other. These whitewashed, um, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. <laughs> kind of interactions that we have every day. Um, but now we're having them in these with beautiful imagery and we're having them at, at rapid speed and we're able to share and like, and, um, you know, get involved in each other's lives in that way. And, you know, social media has been such a, a blessing for so many to stay in touch with far-flung friends and family. Um, but the downside of it is that um, it does take on this 
super polished reality where it's sort of the marketing version of yourself. <laughs> it's instead of being the true version of yourself um, that you're revealing perhaps to your closest friends and family. And so I think we need to be very careful um, to not judge ourselves by the reality that we live in and assume that others' uh, public personas are 100% of what they're dealing with. Thank you for, for that. That sounds great. I was thinking I was saying to you, my, my doctor calls that competitive happiness. Uh, <laughs> some of his, his yeah, patients. I'm more happy than you. I'm more happy. <laughs> I'm going to show you. <laughs> Before we wrap, maybe you'd give us maybe your top five tips, because a lot of our listeners are women with ambition to lead, particularly younger women. So would you give them maybe five top tips? I know networking hopefully is one of them, because I know you're very keen on networking and have been since you were a very young woman. Uh, maybe you could tell us, what are your top five tips for advancing oh, your career oh to limit it to five is such is such a challenge take as long as um, you like I, and you can get as many as you <laughs> like. no 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 i think five is good it's a good discipline my advice is um first of all to get to know yourself decide what you stand for and second of all decide what you need to do to you know fulfill that that purpose and um, to own your career. You know, we talked about it a little earlier. What are the kinds of experiences that you want? Um, if you were to write your resume, not from to, not from today backwards, but from today forwards, what would it include? And how can you go about getting those, those things in your career? Um, the third thing I would say is find ways to build an accountability uh, to yourself. Certainly, if you're an employee, there's some natural, you know, accountability to your company or to your boss or to your team. But find some ways to build an accountability for those larger, more important things in your career. And, you know, some of my people I um, respect have, have found a bit of a board of directors for themselves, you know, people, mentors that will hold them accountable. But I also uh, think that that extends to my point number four, and that is not everybody has to do everything, especially as a topic that comes up in a lot of conversations with women executives or uh, women career uh, topics is about finding balance in your life. And you don't find balance uh, by yourself. You find it with your tribe. <laughs> and whether that's, you know, delegating and reshuffling family responsibilities um, or delegating and reshuffling work responsibilities, you know, it's really important that you, you seek out uh, the resources you need to be successful. And then finally, um, and I think we sort of talked about this when we were talking about social media is it's really important that we give ourselves a break. Um, I think the words finding your balance, <laughs> I think, are very well chosen um, because you find your balance. If you've ever watched somebody try to find their balance, you know, a gymnast, you know, um, on a balance beam or, you know, a toddler struggling to walk for the first time. Finding your balance means wobbling a lot, <laughs> wavering course correcting, you know, finding, finding that center. And so for the person who's finding their balance, <clears throat> they probably feel like they're doing a poor job all the time. You know, they do well <clears throat> by their family one week and then they, you know, do well by their work the next week. And they're constantly in this state of unbalancedness. And so I, I feel like, you know, that's that's that is the pendulum swing of life and we find our balance in the movement and so it's really important that we just give ourselves a break and give each other a break knowing that we're doing the best we can and we need to equip ourselves with the right tools find the right um you know people around us to make us better but at the end of the day 
um, all you can do is just continue to improve and know that, you know, we're just like doctors practice medicine. <laughs> we're practicing it at life here too. And we're learning along the way. Very good advice. I, I like your analogy of wobbling because when a baby is starting to walk, they frequently fall on their arse or their bum, as we say. So it's okay because that's how you learn. <laughs> you know, don't beat yourself up for falling down your bum now and again. And um, before I let you go, there was one thing which is relevant to what you've just been talking about. Uh, you also talk about the courage to ask for help, especially when you're weak. What did you mean by that? Because normally when we're weak, it's the time that we find it most difficult to ask for help. Isn't that the truth? I I feel like for, for myself, I can find the opportunity to rally people to success. If something is happening and it's successful, I can get more people involved. I can tap into, you know, other expertise because just for the sheer enthusiasm of the success that we're having or that, you know, whatever I'm involved in. In times when things are not so successful or more importantly, when you're feeling not as successful, and all of us do, um, it's really important to to reach out in those times to get advice, to to explore options. You know, because often when we're feeling overwhelmed, we we don't see the possibilities anymore. We just see the work, <laughs> um, and so finding people who can provide that fresh perspective and provide you encouragement along the way, and it could be that. The help you need is just somebody to listen. Um, sometimes the help you need is actually somebody to brainstorm with you. Or sometimes the help you need is literally somebody to pick up your kids or to help you with a project or to take something off your plate so that you can focus on a more important thing. And so I think it's, again, it's very, very important to um, have, build that network of people around you that, that you can ask for help and that you can be a help too because that support goes both ways. And that was Jennifer Davis of Planar. That's all from the podcast for now. Our email address for your comments and suggestions is info at womeninleadership.ie. Check out the website womeninleadership.ie for earlier podcasts with some amazing women on all sorts of topics. And remember, we're always open to sponsorship and advertising for the podcast, which we're delighted to say is growing in listeners worldwide all the time. Until the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti, and all on the Women in Leadership podcast team, goodbye and take care. <laughs>